Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. And this weekend is Labor Day in America, which represents the unofficial end to summer. I started this podcast on the unofficial start to summer, which is Memorial Day, and I want to thank everyone for their kind words and support over the last three months. The growth of the program has been amazing, and I look forward to telling you guys about the expansion of the podcast. Stay tuned for future episodes and more information, but for now, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email the host directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps and will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout out in a future podcast, a thank you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In 1930, a man who had started in the hotel industry as a busboy for a restaurant in the French island of Corsica opened his own luxury hotel in New York. After emigrating to New York, he changed his name to Charles Pierre, and he had worked his way through some of the best restaurants in New York, eventually opening his own during the height of the Roaring Twenties. His success allowed him to rub elbows with some of the titans of various industries, and he used his personal connections to acquire the financial backing to build the Pierre. The 41-story hotel overlooking Central Park cost $15 million to build in the 1920s, or over $200 million in today's money, but it was the height of opulence when it opened in 1930. The 714-room building included ornate rooftop architectural features that have served as a distinctive part of the New York skyline for almost 100 years. Pierre's vision for the hotel collapsed as the Great Depression dominated the 1930s. The lack of disposable income and the absence of extra wealth from the stock market pushed the hotel into bankruptcy after only two years. It was purchased in 1938 for only $2.5 million, or roughly $40 million today, and many of the hotel rooms were converted into apartments for New York elites. As America's economy recovered, so did the Pierre Hotel. By the 1950s and 60s, many of the high-end apartments and even some of the hotel rooms were owned or leased by some of the richest and well-known people in the world. The hotel's clientele list included European royalty, famous actors, and titans of industry. The combined wealth of the patrons and residents of the hotel made it a juicy target for criminals, and by 1970, a group had their eyes set on the great wealth kept inside the hotel. They planned a risky but lucrative heist, and in early 1972, they pulled off one of the greatest robberies in history. This is the story of the Pierre Hotel heist. The masterminds behind this heist were two men named Samuel Nalo and Robert Comfort. They were professional burglars and thieves who had impressive criminal resumes to include several successful heists from other high-end New York City hotels. Their last job before the Pierre had been a burglary of a suite in the Sherry Netherland Hotel that belonged to famous actress Sophia Loren. Their haul from the one suite heist was reported to be over $1 million in cash and jewelry, or the equivalent of around $8 million today. The men had also completed successful heists from the Drake Hotel, 
the Regency Hotel, the Carlisle Hotel, and the St. Regis. Samuel was adept at coming up with plans to get into the hotels and the targeted rooms while Robert was put in charge of organizing the logistics of the crime. While they had experienced quite a bit of success in the 1960s with their crimes, they set about planning the heist of the Pierre well in advance of the crime. Instead of hitting an individual room, they wanted to hit the hotel's vault, filled with safety deposit boxes for the hotel's residents and patrons. The vault rivaled many of the largest banks in New York, but gave the guests the opportunity to easily access large amounts of cash or jewelry that they may want to wear on special occasions. Some guests used the vault as short-term storage and normally kept their most precious valuables in much more secure bank vaults when they planned on leaving them there for a significant length of time. Samuel and Robert knew that to maximize their haul and to perpetrate the heist as easily as possible, they would need to conduct the crime when the vault was heavily stocked with valuables and the hotel staff was at its smallest. Their plan involved a takeover robbery which required a large crew a limited amount of staff, and plenty of guns and equipment. The Pierre was in a part of New York where crime was controlled by the Lucchesi Mafia family. This meant if Samuel and Robert wanted to avoid having to run from both the police and the Mafia after the crime, they needed the blessing of the Lucchesi family. While this came with the family getting a cut of the proceeds, it also came with additional muscle that could be trusted to not rat out other members of the crew and the promise of the equipment needed to carry out the heist. So again, this is the height of mafia operating in the New York area. So you've got all these crime families that are that basically divided up the city and they control large crime and other aspects of organized crime activities in various areas. And if you wanted to conduct a job like this, a, a large scale robbery, if you did this without the blessing of the mafia family that covered this area of New York, they would see it as somebody encroaching on their territory. And so again, not only would these two guys have to run from the police, they'd also be running from mafia hitmen and their life expectancy would be rather short even if they were able to pull off this crime. Plus, while it's just the two of them and they'd accomplish some of these single room burglaries like the place, uh, so Sophia Loren's place, for a takeover style robbery, it's going to be very difficult. Even though the staff is going to be at a minimum, it's going to be still at least a dozen, if not more, uh, staff that are working and two guys trying to secure and monitor over a dozen staff members and then any patrons that have to be, be taken into custody during this takeover, they have to be watched over to make sure they don't try to escape or contact the police. So they're going to need to have a decent sized crew in order to pull, pull off this takeover style robbery. And not just that, just like we've talked about in the past, the more people that you involve in a crime like this, the better chance that after the crime, somebody's going to slip up. Uh, we talked about it in the case of the Dunbar Depot robbery. These, those were all friends of the mastermind that he could trust to not say too much before the robbery and that he trusted not to slip up after the robbery. Now, eventually he did slip up 
and the whole crew was was discovered in that case and we're going to see that again here it's it's just difficult the more people you have in the crew the better chance that somebody's going to mess up in this case it's going to be the masterminds that mess up afterwards but going to the Luchesi family they're able to get several crew members that are experienced criminals that know what they're doing they can be trusted not to mess up because again just like in the Dunbar robbery if one of the guys slipped up and ended up shooting somebody that meant they were all became murderers the one committing a crime makes everybody responsible for that murder and it's going to be the same thing here they're going to go in with guns and if anybody ends up shooting a member of the staff or ends up shooting a, a patron of the hotel they're all going to be wanted for murder it's going to change the entire scope of the crime so they needed trusted experienced criminals that can keep their cool in a extremely high tension situation such as this takeover so that the mafia is going to provide that for them and give them the blessing and but they're going to have to give up a, a chunk of whatever they end up taking during this robbery and given the amount of cash and valuables Samuel and Robert hoped to acquire during the heist, giving some of the cut to the Mafia in exchange for additional crew and supplies was a reasonable expenditure. Based on information that was obtained during several recon and surveillance missions carried out by Samuel and Robert, they, they determined the hotel was easiest to target during the early morning hours when staff numbers were at their lowest. There was only one security guard and extremely limited staff due to the low-level activity and services required while most of the residents were sleeping. And this is when you would typically conduct these types of burglaries. Now, maybe a hotel might be a little bit different. If you're trying to hit just a single room, you might obviously plan some type of a uh, burglary plan that had some type of a sub subterfuge to it. You could even do something like that in the middle of the day. Maybe you go in posing as housekeeping or maintenance to do work on the room and you're able to get in, conduct your burglar and get out. And it's one of those situations where you can kind of blend into the crowd. People aren't gonna notice you as much. So obviously the different styles of crime require different approaches and different timing. In this case, since they want to completely take over the hotel, they have to do it when there's the least number of people present, which includes staff and patrons. So if they go in the early morning hours, most of the patrons, the residents, are going to be sleeping. And because this is a time period when most of the patrons are sleeping, the staffing levels are much lower in terms of front desk staff, security guards, bellhops, all all those types of people that normally would operate during the day shift and in great numbers, they're not required. So we've got the lowest number of staff and most people sleeping. So this is the time period that they're gonna hit. In order to ensure the vault had the maximum amount of cash and valuables available to the crew, the decision was made to hit the hotel during the early morning hours of January 2nd. All banks were closed on January 1st to observe the New Year's Day holiday, so residents would be most apt to have stored their jewelry they wore at extravagant New Year's Eve parties during the day on January 1st before they could get them to the bank during business hours on January 2nd. Again, most of these safety deposit boxes are not permanent storage locations. People might, if, if they're a hotel visitor, they may just put their items in the safety deposit box during their stay at the hotel. 
And if they're residents of one of the long-term apartments or condos in this hotel, they may use the safety deposit box more like a bank and actually store valuables there somewhat long-term. But if they have anything that's extremely valuable, they're more apt to have that in an actual bank vault. This is just easy access for them, but it's also supposed to be secure. So this works well for that short-term storage. And because people wouldn't be able to get their stuff to the bank, they'd have to have taken it out of the bank sometime before the 31st. They can't get it back to there till the daytime of January 2nd. So the decision is made they're going to hit the hotel in the early morning hours of January 2nd before anybody could get up and get their items out of those safety deposit boxes into a bank. And the two men arranged to have their crew meet in the back room of Samuel's nightclub on the evening of December 30th. This would be the first time the other members of the crew learned the entire plan for the heist, a tactic designed to prevent someone from slipping up and mentioning the heist to the wrong person. And again, even though they're using well-known criminals that are part of this Lucchesi crime family, there's still an, a chance that somebody tells a mistress, a significant other, hey, I'm, you know, we're going to hit the Pierre, we're going to get a ton of money so you know, things are going to be really good this this next year we're going to have a lot of cash and then that person happens to mention to somebody especially if drinking's involved especially around the holidays all it takes is again one person to tell somebody that person tells somebody else and suddenly the entire job that they've been working on for over a year now at this point they're going to have to scrap it if if the wrong person tells tells somebody so the team consisted of Samuel and Robert, along with Bobby, Germain, Nick the Cat Sacco, Donald Francos, Al Visconti, Ali Ben, and Al Green. Everybody but Samuel and Robert were associates of the Lucchesi Mafia, and it would be Bobby's job to break open the safety deposit boxes while the other seven men were assigned the task of securing staff and any wayward guests during the heist. At 3.50 a.m. on January 2nd, the group arrived via limousine to the front doors of the hotel. Entrance to the hotel after hours required a reservation, so Robert had booked a reservation under the alias Dr. Foster. Al Green approached the front door dressed as the limo chauffeur and buzzed the security guard and told him Dr. Foster had arrived for his reservation. The guard phoned the front desk, which confirmed the reservation, and the guard unlocked the door for Al Green. So again, this is not a place that is open 24-7. This is not a 24-7 lobby for this hotel. If it was, A, it, yeah, it would have been maybe a little bit easier for these guys to get in, but B, the, the hotel would probably have more security staff if they had people able to walk in off the street at all hours of the day. So this kind of works against them, but also in their favor because the hotel feels pretty secure during these overnight hours because they have the doors locked so nobody can just walk in but based on their research and their recon robert and samuel knew this they set up this fictitious reservation that's going to get the front door unlocked and that's going to get them access into the hotel while the staff is at its lowest the other seven men who had since got out of the limo some with suitcases in hand waited for the guard to unlock the door and then they displayed weapons and pointed them at the guard and took him into custody. The crew had been supplied with roughly 36 sets of metal handcuffs to secure any staff or guests, and after the guard was put into handcuffs, he was walked to an alcove that served as a makeshift detention center. 
so again, they're very well equipped for this takeover. They're not going to mess around. They're not going to worry about tying people up. They know there's going to be a lot of people that need to get secured very quickly. Handcuffs are a great way to minimize the chance that somebody can fight back or if you handcuff them behind their back, it's going to be much harder for them to break free and, and get a phone and make a phone call. This is obviously well before cell phones, so all they have to do is keep these people in this makeshift detention center in handcuffs, and they've got eight guys. Everybody has a gun. The, the staff is not armed. I don't know if the security guard was armed or not, but he's taken into custody. He's facing eight guns very quickly, so he's not going to be a threat anymore. So basically, once they've made their way into the hotel, they now essentially own this hotel, and they're going to just start rounding up staff on the first floor, and then they shut off the elevators, and this is going to prevent easy access for anyone from the floors above. So the last thing they want is four o'clock in the morning, five o'clock in the morning rolls around is a bunch of people waking up, hopping in the elevator, riding down to the lobby and walking into the middle of this takeover. So they're going to post somebody at the stairs, likely somebody at the elevator lobby itself in case the stairs feed into the elevator lobby. And they're going to round up the staff and the crew and they find out there are about three to four sets of cuffs short. So they end up tying the last of their hostages with taper rope. And because the guard would not have unlocked the door for men in ski masks, the group had to find other ways to hide their appearances during the robbery. So they employed wigs, fake mustaches and beards, wore fake glasses, and told people to keep their eyes on the ground. Because again, if, if you're the security guard, yes, there's a reservation coming in, but if it's eight guys in ski masks, you're not going to unlock the front door for them and let them into the hotel. So they had to appear like they were business guys associated with this Dr. Foster. And once they're in, once the security guard has seen them, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for them to switch over into ski masks. Plus, there are going to be a couple times uh, after rounding up the staff, Robert took over the front desk and answered the many phone calls for service that came in. And if a guest made a request to the front desk, he would comply to prevent the guest from discovering the heist. So this is a case, sometimes hotel guests would call down and ask for extra pillows or blankets, or they'd call and say they want a, a wake-up call at a certain time or a late checkout or whatever it might be. This robbery is going to go on for about two and a half hours. So during this time, Robert's basically got to become the front desk staff and pretend as if the hotel's operating as normal because the last thing they need is a dozen or more guests figuring out something's not right and contacting NYPD from their hotel room. And next thing you know, NYPD has the hotel surrounded and these guys are either going to be in a shootout because they did say that if if police responded that they were going to shoot their way out of it it was they weren't going to be taken alive type of a situation so they, they're doing everything they can to avoid that happening and while Bobby and Samuel worked on the safety deposit boxes a guest called to complain about the elevators not working so two of the crew went up to the guest 15th floor room and grabbed him his wife and his mother-in-law and added them to the group of staff and guests that had originally been captured and I guess this guy he was Brazilian and he was on his honeymoon with his wife and his brand new mother-in-law 
But this is going to be an unforeseen move because one of the other guests that was taken into custody early on was the mistress of this Brazilian man who called to complain about the elevators. So he had called because he was planning on using the elevators to meet up with his mistress in the lobby. But both had been taken into custody as well as the wife and mother-in-law. So I'm sure there was a little bit of explaining that needed to be done after after the heist between that group. Uh, so, I mean, I'm sure your new wife is going to wonder why her husband was getting up at 4 o'clock in the morning to use the elevator to go somewhere in the hotel. And meanwhile, now the four of them, the husband, the wife, the mother-in-law, and the mistress are all part of this hostage group on, in the lobby area. And as Samuel and Bobby worked their way through the safety deposit boxes, they referred to research they'd done in the weeks leading up to the heist. By scanning the city's newspapers, they discovered articles mentioning who was going to be in town and likely staying at the pier. From there, they had written down a list of the richest targets and then compared to names on the registry for the safety deposit boxes to maximize their chances of large fines. Because this is not as easy as them just going in and opening up these safety deposit boxes. The way safety deposit boxes work is, well, first they have to have access to the vault, which they're going to get access to because this is a takeover style robbery. So they own everything in that hotel at that point in terms of there's nothing's going to stop them. They, If there was a combination to get into this vault, they're going to get that out of somebody and they're going to if it's not already open or there's not a key for it that they're able to get off of a guard. Uh, again, there's no research on that, but, but they're pretty easily able to get into the vault. But once they're in there, these safety deposit boxes, there's kind of a two-step process in order to get these things open. The box themselves are locked in into a wall. So you can't just pull out a box you have to unlock the box from the wall and then the box itself is secured by a lock so you you not only have to pry this box out of the wall pry the door open pry the box out of the wall then you have to pry the box itself open and there's hundreds of these security boxes and it takes a while to open up each one so instead of just starting at box one and hoping that there was something in there or hoping that whoever was registered to it had some cash or valuables they had done this research in advance. They had names of individuals and they're able to compare it to a register that said, hey, you know, so-and-so has is related to safety deposit box 152. So there's a good chance that safety deposit box 152 is going to be filled with cash and or valuables. And one box they found contained roughly half a million dollars in easy to use cash while another held over $3 million in $500 bills. The U.S. had stopped using $500 bills, at least making them, roughly two years prior. So while they were, were still legal tender, they were much riskier to possess and to spend than the smaller denomination. So it's still a big score, those $3 million, of course, because that's the equivalent of, I think it was somewhere in the range of 15 to million dollars worth today or, or, or 20 million dollars but these 500 dollars bills are going to raise some eyebrows it's not like you can go to your local gas station and, and drop a 500 dollars bill it's going to take a lot more to launder that money but they're still making some really good and easy cash real quick and and other than the bills being hard to use there's still cash so they're still a little bit harder to trace than 
than other forms uh, such as the jewelry and i think they did wash a lot of this three million dollars in cash i think it said that they were buying things like expensive jewelry so it doesn't take long to go through this these 500 dollars bills if you're using them towards big purchases especially through mafia connections so again it's it's a difficult score but it is a good score and those two boxes alone netted the criminals 3.5 million which there it is it's worth about 25 million dollars today in today's value uh, the robbery continued for two and a half hours and the men were able to break into roughly a quarter of the safety deposit boxes their largest scores were the cash from the two boxes and a diamond necklace valued at $750,000. The men gave each of the hotel staff a $20 bill to thank them for their cooperation and silence and left out the side doors. The four suitcases they carried in were filled with cash and valuables and were loaded into three getaway cars that had been arranged by members of the Chessie Mafia. They left the hotel at 6.30 a.m., just 30 minutes before the day shift would arrive. So they probably could have taken even more, but these safety deposit boxes were taking a while to break into, I think longer than they expected them to. While they had this great score, had they had more time, they could have been there longer, but it was something where obviously if they showed up earlier in the evening, they risked the chance of having more guests and patrons moving about the hotel and obviously the, the later they got there the the less time they had before this day shift came in so they hit the hotel when they thought they would could maximize people being asleep the staff being the shortest and still have time to get out before this day shift arrived and their total take was estimated to be around 28 million dollars which is the equivalent of over 200 million dollars in today's value but it has been reported as anywhere from $3 million to $28 million. And the difference is likely related to victims not wanting to report accurate losses because in many cases, the money and valuables kept in the safety deposit boxes had not been reported to the IRS, and the victims faced possible tax fraud charges if they admitted to possessing large sums of cash income they had failed to disclose. And this is why a lot of people keep this type of cash in these safety deposit boxes because it's not a bank so they wouldn't have to report moving this money around like they would if it was a federally insured bank it's going to rate obviously if you've got accounts with millions of dollars in it uh, and you're reporting income of a hundred thousand dollars to the irs there's going to be some head scratching and investigation going on if you're sitting on accounts worth several million dollars so instead you could avoid that by liquidating your assets, turning it to cash, and keeping it in something like a safety deposit box at a hotel where nobody's gonna be looking for it. And so when it comes to reporting this loss, you have to choose, do I wanna say, hey, I had $3 million the government didn't know about sitting in that safety deposit box, or do you just, I don't know, eat the cost? I, I, I don't know what you exactly do there, but because uh, I think it was very underreported, uh, the victims very much underreported their losses. And I think, too, it's, it's a lot like the Dunbar robbery. I don't think the authorities wanted to release that these guys made off with this much in cash for fear of copycat-style crimes of a similar nature. So even though $3 million was a lot of money back then, I think like I said we quit, it's somewhere in the range of about 20 million. Telling people that these guys made off with 28 million dollars uh, would have been 
earth-shattering at that point. And not a single shot was fired during the heist, and none of the staff or guests were harmed. The hostage would later say the crew treated them with manners, using the term sir or ma'am, but they also threatened to kill them if they tried to escape or alert the police. It was Samuel's job to fence the take, and it had been prearranged for him to use a member of the Lucchesi family named Christy the Tick Fernari for the job. There's, there's a couple names here I know I mentioned earlier. Sacco, he's the cat. David Frankos, his nickname was Tony the Greek or something along those lines. So it's always interesting to cover a, a mob case because these guys always have these weird nicknames. And and, he, and this guy is known as the Tick, which ticks are known for being bloodsuckers. And so when Christie demanded an absurd 33% take of the profit, and Samuel decided not to use the fence and instead use his own connections out of Detroit, Michigan. So, again, maybe he gets the nickname The Tick because he's blood-sucking and he wants to get 33% of the take of the profit, which, if it's $28 million, that's over $9 million in his take, which the equivalent of somewhere around $60, $70 million in today's cash just for being the fence. You would think this would be something that would have been agreed upon in, in advance, and maybe it was, and and this guy just changed the terms of it at the last second, which pissed Samuel off. Somehow, this Christy Frenari, the tick, still ended up with around $3 million. So I'm sure there was, there was a predetermined cut that was going to the mafia, but then this guy probably tried to take his 33% on top of that and they decided not to go with his with his services and with the entire plan to fence the items falling apart because Samuel had backed out of the deal with Lucchesi Mafia the other members took their cut of what they could and Samuel's left with the task of liquidating some of the hard to move $500 bills and unique large jewelry items so the the crew had likely gone back to, I don't know, maybe it was Samuel's nightclub, wherever, somewhere to break up their take. And they, just like in the Dunbar robbery, they weren't supposed to obviously go out and start spending everything. There was a plan in place. We we're going to fence these items through the mafia. You'll get your cuts of what we promised you. And it's just going to take a little bit of time. Well, Samuel ends up with all of this take, minus, I guess, what the Lucchesi family took for their cut and so now he's stuck with trying to liquidate some of the harder to move items other guys are starting to freak out thinking they're not going to get their cut so a few of them took what they could and ran and again that this left Samuel and Robert in kind of a tough position so he uh, Samuel enlists the help of Robert to fence as much of the cash and jewels as they could but an FBI informant got nervous when he learned about the items being stored in Detroit and told the FBI who arrested Samuel and Robert for their roles in the crime. And this was actually this, I think it was a Harry Winston diamond necklace, that $750,000 diamond necklace. Uh, Samuel gave that to this mob boss in Detroit who happened to be an FBI informant. This necklace is obviously extremely recognizable and this mob boss gets concerned that he's going to be linked to this hotel robbery. He's an FBI informant, so he just turns in Robert and Samuel. 
turns over the necklace, turns in Robert Samuel. I believe he, though, kept a lot of stuff. There's going to be a lot of... Because they're fencing through, the mafia falls through, they're going to be reaching out to different organizations to try to help them defend stuff and most of the people are going to end up stealing items from them without really fencing anything especially after samuel and robert get arrested so a good amount of the the hall is going to be stolen out of the stash house and this is going to cause some of the other members of the crew to feel like they were about to be set up so ali ben and al green fled to europe as they feared law enforcement would come after them next they didn't leave empty-handed were able to take most of their cut with them and live comfortably for the remainder of their short lives and we'll talk about why their lives are kind of short down the road here and despite some of the take being seized it was reported that robert comfort ended up with 1.5 million which is roughly 10 million dollars today and he would have netted more but he had given a bunch of his cut to of jewelry to the mafia in rochester new york and I guess at some point he tried to go back and retrieve it from them, and they almost murdered him. So, again, he likely would have had a much larger cut, but most of his was stolen from him. Most of Samuel's was stolen from him by this mafia in Detroit. The Lucchesi family took a bunch of it. And so Samuel Nollis was left with whatever jewelry he hadn't given to the mom, boss, or the FBI informant in Detroit or stored in the stash house. Donald Franco's, Bobby G, and Al Visconti all received around 175000 which is the equivalent of $1.25 million in today's money. And Frank the Cat Sacco somehow managed to keep around $2 million, or almost $15 million worth in today's money. And so if you add it all up, the eight crew members are believed to have ended up with about only 4 to $5 million of the nearly $28 million that was taken. And the rest was either claimed by the mob, stolen by so-called friends, or seized by the FBI. Of all the men who participated in the crime, only Samuel and Robert were put on trial for it. They reportedly bribed the judge for lenient sentences, and as part of a plea deal, their charges were dropped from first-degree robbery to a burglary charge. They were supposed to be sentenced to four years, of which they would serve two and a half, but the judge sentenced them to seven years. They appealed and were awarded the lesser sentences, with many speculating that the judge purposely sentenced them to more prison time to offset the bribery accusations, but knew all along they would only receive these four-year sentences. And so it was said that this entire lenient sentence, this entire judge bribery had been set up by the Lucchesi crime family, and it was basically if Samuel and Robert stayed quiet, didn't turn over the six members of the Lucchesi crime family that that had assisted them on this robbery, then the mafia would help them out by making sure that they didn't serve a lot of time. So not only, again, are they did they get help, did they get set up with the robbery, help from the Chessie crime family, afterwards they're getting help. Instead of facing these this massive first-degree burg- robbery charge, it probably would have put them away for, I don't know, 20, 25 years, something like that they're able to have it drop down to a burglary charge and they're only going to be sentenced to four years as part of this prearranged bribe. However, obviously the judge is worried that it's going to look a little too obvious, that he's already knocked it down from a robbery to a burglary, that if they don't serve enough time, people are going to start to look at him. So he issues this seven-year sentence, which he knows is going to get knocked down to four and ultimately both samuel and robert end up serving only 19 months in prison and never again were able to pull off a job like the pierre 
Now, of the original crew, only one member remains alive today. Robert Comfort died of cancer in 1986, and Samuel Nalo was gunned down in 1988. Donald Frankos had threatened Samuel's life, but was proven not to be the gunman. He'd been upset because he'd been promised a $750,000 payday, worth around $5.4 million today, but instead he ended up with only $175,000. And, and so because the cut got so diluted through this falling out of the fencing operation, the theft of so much of it, the seizure of some of it, basically they couldn't afford to give these hitmen like Donald Franco's the money that they promised them that on December 30th when they met in the nightclub before this, this deal. And the last person you want to short or piss off is a mafia hitman so after he gets shorted on this job he makes no bones about the fact that he wants to kill samuel nalo because he's he feels like samuel stole a bunch of the money that was meant for him and but it said that when samuel nalo was gunned down donald frankos was looked at and i don't know if he was in prison or, or how he was ruled out as a as a suspect but he was proven to not have gunned him down but while he wasn't linked to the murder of samuel nalo he did track down ali ben and al green in 19 and, and killed both of them so again and ali ben was a hitman so that was kind of an issue where a hitman tracked down and killed a hitman and al green was ali ben's brother-in-law so those two got wiped out likely because they got the cuts that they were promised or maybe they were assumed to have taken some of Donald Franco's cut because it was never said how much the the brother and brother or the brother-in-law and Ali Ben took, but it was said that they were enough to live comfortably. So he might have felt like he got shorted by those guys. So he tracked them down and killed them in Europe in 1981, and he died in Donald died in 2011 from natural causes. And Al Visconti was shot and killed in 1991 during what the newspapers called a mob purge. And Bobby G. died of natural causes in Florida sometime after his son was shot and killed by the mob for becoming a police informant in 1980. And so when you look at this, a couple died from natural causes, but four of them were gunned down after the robbery for various, either directly related to the robbery or other mob-related killings. So sometimes, you know, when people watch whether it be The Godfather, Goodfellas, The Sopranos, uh, they kind of sit back and say, this it's TV, it's movies, it can't really be real. But when you look at this case, it's, it's pretty clear that there's a lot of mob violence and short lifespans for those that commit crimes with the mob. And the only crew member left alive is Frank the Cat Sacco. He credits his long life to turning on the mob and entering the Federal Witness Protection Program. He entered the program in 1975 when he snitched on information regarding a triple murder related to the mob. Frank's home address is unknown, and even an author that worked on a, with, on a book about the heist has never met the reclusive man and doesn't know where he lives other than in California. The heist still stands as the most successful hotel robbery of all time. Its meticulous planning, execution, and high-value take was legendary, but the inability for those involved to cash out and stay alive speaks to the risks involved in these types of crimes, especially when the mafia is involved. But that is the case of the Pierre Hotel heist. 
Thank you guys for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes and feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. You can also find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. That's it for today, guys. Thanks for listening. Talk to you later. Goodbye.